Welcome back to It's Pronounced Memoir, a podcast where we review celebrity memoirs and blather on about them. On today's episode, we discuss how Barbara Streisand taught me to pronounce Empire Waist Dress Ampere, and many more compelling reasons you should read her marathon, I mean her new memoir, a thousand-page tome from Viking called My Name is Barbara. Today is part one of our My Name is Barbara discussion, so welcome to our first memoir mini-series. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts and fellow Streisand sloggers, Wendy Ahrens and Mariana Olenko. Hi, friends. How are you? Hi, Anne. Hi, how are you and how far into this encyclopedia Babs Tanaka are you? I'm doing great. And I'm about halfway through, and I can't remember what chapter that is. Well, we already got confused about chapters versus pages, so no one knows. And hours, and hours. And hours. And decades. Right, yes. 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 I am doing well. I'm on uh, chapter 31, so I have about 16 hours of audio left. Yes, I have about five hours of audio hours. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, that's oh, where so I am. Are you, are you in the 2000s, the year 2000s? Uh, I don't know. Okay. So wait a second. When you said we're all confused about pages and hours, you meant only I am confused because Anne and Wendy seem to know exactly like to the second where they are. <laughs> yeah, she was calling you out. Uh, well, if if you are a horse in a horse race that is reading this memoir, how are you feeling about now? And please name your horse. Mariana? Well, my horse is Beshert Anna, and Beshert is also a word that I learned from Barbara. It means meant to be. Yeah, great so word. meant to be Anna. Meant to be Anna is feeling um, okay. Like I could go for an oat or two just about <laughs> now, but otherwise I'm feeling pretty good strutting along. How about you, Wendy? My horse's name is the way we were when we started the audiobook 48 hours ago. So I'm ready for one of those nice horse blankets and a little stable time. <laughs> My horse's name is Lucky Number 24, which is which is Barbara's lucky number. And um, like Barbara, I too have my feedback strapped on at almost all times. But before we begin, I must say, all jokes aside, that reading this book has filled me with awe for what Barbara Streisand has accomplished with her insatiable talent. How one human can be this talented in so many spheres, it's beyond comprehension. Also, 970 pages, or in my case, 48 audiobook hours later, I now measure my life in Barbara years. (laughs) Amazon gives it 4.6 out of 5 stars, except for one-star reviews about how indecipherably light the print is, or my personal favorite from username Britano, my name is Barbara, biologically and non-scientifically possible. Okay, insight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope Britano writes a memoir because that's going to be a a few minutes long at least. (laughs) Use lots of ink is the takeaway there. Yes. (laughs) Um, And you thought the EGOT was impressive. So this is from her website. Streisand has been awarded two Oscars, five Emmys, 10 Grammys, including the Legend Award and the Lifetime Achievement Award, a Tony Award, 11 Golden Globes, including the Cecil Cecil B. DeMille Award, 
three Peabody's and the Director's Guild Award for her concert special, the only artist to receive honors in all of those areas. Do you remember the Hungry Caterpillar book and how tired you'd get reading to that to your kids? Because that's how I just felt <laughs> re reading that <laughs> list. Um, so after getting to know so very much more about her life and career, if you created a new award for Barbara, what would it be and why, Wendy? I would be, uh, I would give her the best memory for small details award because she remembers everything from the shoes she wore to a certain show when she was 20 and maybe she was referencing pictures but it doesn't sound like it I mean she remembers incredibly minute details which is just another example of how her mind is so brilliant and really doesn't miss anything how about you, Mariana? Similarly, I would give her something like the Interesting Minutia Award. She remembers her first paycheck, how much it was before taxes and after taxes. She remembers all the art she bought and considered buying, how much it cost then. Now it's hanging at the Metropolitan Museum. Just really interesting details. Mm -hmm. I think that she's a truth teller and facts are really important to her. And I know this because she says it in the first chapter. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, and we'll certainly talk more about that shortly. For awards, I would give her, I'm torn between the best snacker award because <laughs> as somebody who also needs to eat every two hours, I love how she constantly talks about what food was on set and a sandwich she ate 40 years ago. And I <laughs> relate to that. Um, and I want to give her the best Brooklynite award. My father was raised in Brooklyn, went to the same high school as her at the same time, did not know her. Wow. But I'm really struck by, I just watched Funny Girl again, and how she loves her identity as a Brooklynite, as a Jew. She never wanted to change her nose, her teeth, anything about her. And she uses it in such a unique and beautiful way. And as I get older... I appreciate that in a whole new way. Mm. That's a, and she has not lost her accent at all, considering she hasn't lived in Brooklyn for decades. Um, and I know that accent very well after listening to it for the good part of three months. <laughs> yes, that's how all well, of our inner narrative is now in Babs. Yeah. Yeah. Can we uh, confess to each other? Do you listen to the audio at regular speed or a little uh, bit sped up? I think I'm at 1.7, Barbara. We all listen at 1.7, right? Or are you mm -hmm. even faster, Marian? I'm at 1.75, but I read along oh. on my Kindle. Okay, extra right. points. Mm -hmm. Your memory retention is going gonna, is gonna to be way better than ours. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> but the problem is a cautionary note, you can never go back. Once you start listening to her at 1.7, if you go back to 1.0, it sounds like there's a medical emergency going on, but it's just her. Well, I mean, okay. okay, but this is just science. You can't go from 1.7 to one. You have to go to one, six, five. You have to gradually decrease the dosage. You have <laughs> to taper your Barbara. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Under medical supervision, obviously. Only, only. Absolutely. I will say that when she sings, it actually holds up fine on 1.7 until you get to the vibrato and then it starts to sound a little weird, but I would try to slow down just the singing parts. Um, but Wendy's got the book and she gets all the photos, which is a real bonus and worth looking at for sure. And there's 
such a massive amount of detail. And my memory is now even worse than it was before I started, I'm afraid. So I'm just going to give a quick synopsis from Publishers Weekly, and then we'll get into our discussion. Um, so utilizing her own journals, her mother's scrapbooks, and interviews with colleagues and friends, the decorated singer and actor delivers a thoroughly enjoyable survey of her life and career that even at nearly a thousand pages never overstays its welcome. Streisand begins with her teenage adventures fleeing her emotionally distant mother and stepfather's Brooklyn apartment for Manhattan, where she and a friend went to see Broadway plays and where she eventually moved and got her first taste of showbiz success singing in nightclubs. From there, she dives deep into her key projects and famous relationships, writing of being booted off the Billboard Top 2 by the Beatles. Their sound was sensational, so I had no complaints. Developing stage fright during her star-making turn in the Broadway musical Funny Girl and falling in love with leading men from Elliot Gould to James Brolin. So, okay, my dear horses, I mean, co-hosts, we need to trot all the way back to the beginning now. So giddy up. Let's review the first half of the book by way of very random notes I took in my iPhone, such as started <laughs> in the 90s handwriting this book, can't type, plays games on her phone at night, loves painting. No, let's not do that. Let's talk about okay. themes instead. This was Wendy's brilliant idea as I got completely overwhelmed. So themes, much of this, of Barbara herself and this whole story is defined by the childhood loss of her father, who she barely knew. Well, he died when she was one. Yeah. Yep. He died when she was one. She tells a story of like toddling over to the window, looking for him to come home. It's in the most formative time, you know, those years zero to three in terms of human development are massive. To, so to have that big a loss at that time is just traumatizing. Her mom, we don't know if she was a warm woman before she lost her husband, but she soon remarries and Barbara's stepfather is, they're both very cold and unkind to her. So she kind of forms her identity on her own, running around the neighborhood. She talks about always questioning and being outspoken. What do you remember from this? these early parts of her life? One of the things that was super interesting about Barbara is that when she writes that she learned a lesson, she learns it right away. There was a time when her stepfather, whose name, weirdly, his last name was Kind, and he was mm -hmm. so unkind. So I don't know. I just want to cram in as much factoids as I've learned from this book, you know, like when you're in high school or college and you just sort of vomit out all the facts. So the teacher knows you read the book to prove it to them. Um, so she wants to endear herself to him. And when he's watching TV, she slithers across the floor to get to the other side. So she doesn't obstruct his view and he's not any nicer to her. Like he doesn't even notice. And so she learned never to lower herself for any man. And that's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, it could be just a convenient story she told, but I, I get a sense that she's honest about it. And that like that really, I'm not doing this shit again. You know, I'd piggyback on that and say that she was seeking her mom and stepfather's approval and never got it. And instead of that sticking with her her whole life, she was kind of like, screw it. I, I'm going to just get my own approval for myself. And, you know, I never got the sense 
uh, anything she wrote later on about her career that she was doing it for the audience to love her. She she just doesn't really give a shit about that. Not that she is egotistical, but she's like, this is what I'm good at. I'm going to go do it. If you like it, you like it. But I related that back to how, uh, to her childhood, to that aspect of her childhood. She says at one point, I wonder if people with fathers know how lucky they are. And there was just like so much sadness in her voice. Um, and yeah, maybe she can ask Britney Spears about that. Right. right. <laughs> oh my God. Not all fathers. Not all fathers. Hashtag not all fathers. Um, and she well, also. He was, he was a perfect father because she didn't know him. That's true. So, That's yeah. really true. Well, it's like Barack Obama saying that he was shaped by his father's absence mm-hmm. rather than his presence. Mm-hmm. And she develops a spiritual connection to her dad and to God or the universe that comes back again and again in these mystical ways in the book. So she has this defining moment when she's a little girl and she's talking to her friend, trying to convince her of the power of God. And she sees this man crossing the street and she goes, if there's a God, he's going to stumble. And with in a second, he stumbles and she's pretty freaked out. But then she even sort of convinces herself. And from the rest of the story, she has this connection to God and asking her father for guidance in hard moments. Does anybody remember her going to health camp? Because she was too skinny. She had asthma. This is just another weird like part of the culture. I feel like they called it health camp, but it was like jail. And I just, in terms of her feeling alone and on her own, she's only seven or eight years old. So first she loses her father at like one or two years old. And then at seven or eight, she has to go to this camp, but it's torture for her. Um, and she develops asthma. And again, along the spiritual thing, the theme, she connects, she often connects maladies to what's ever going on with her psyche. She talks about developing a, a allergy to horses after a bad fall off a horse. And then sure enough, later when she gets over her fear of horses, the allergies go away. So she talks about asthma, developing asthma at this camp because she was home, so homesick. But again, it's just this repetition of being on her own and having to forge her own way that I think serves her so well as she goes on in her career and is often adrift in a sea of unfriendly people. She is. And one thing she did as, as a young girl, she mentions a neighbor that would watch her and make clothes for her, I believe. But because she didn't get a lot of affection from her mom, there's a recurring theme of how she finds other women that befriend her, take her under their wing. And she has very strong friendships. She's, you know, talks about the same women friends that were her friends for decades. She wasn't like going out in search of a a mother figure, but she would find them for whatever reason. And I think she, like Phyllis Diller bought her her first fancy dress because they were performing together in a nightclub. And, you know, so she was very grateful to that and recognized the importance that these women played in her life. And she was so thrifty and like plucky. She loved thrift shopping and just was supporting herself without any help from the moment she decided to pursue singing for her. Singing is just a gateway to acting. She loves acting first and foremost, and then directing is her favorite, getting to sort of control the whole vision from the beginning and throughout. But it might surprise people that 
singing was a gift that came to her. She took one voice lesson in her whole life and hated it. She, from being a little girl, she was known as the kid who could sing and never really was that excited about it, but knew it was her ticket mm -hmm. to getting where she wanted to go. And Mariana, something you said, another example of like how she'll have a moment in her life and take a lesson from it. She and her mom were walking to the movies in these early years and mid walk, her mom just decided they weren't going to go. And Barbara had been so excited. It was a big event to go to the movies and her mom didn't yeah. have a good reason for it. And she said at that moment, she understood how important it was to keep your word. You know, she just totally lost trust with her mom that was so fragile to begin with. And then I also found it fascinating that she has tinnitus. Is that how you say it when you have the ear tinnitus? The, yeah, it, ringing tinnitus. in your ear? Mm -hmm. Do you remember, does she still have that? It sounded like she did, like she said yeah. it never went away. Or I, at least that's what I'm making up right now. No, I think you're right. And it's like torture. It's a ringing in your ears that never go away. And what's so interesting, so we know how she sings, but she, and she does not read music, but she can hear to like a crazy fraction of a decibel and note such that she can sing something for a conductor, how she wants it to be. And like, stop a whole recording session with a whole orchestra because she hears one little thing and that's wrong. And then sure enough, the conductor goes, oh, wow, that's actually written wrong in the music. Like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. That was the biggest surprise for me because I've known of Barbara Streisand my whole life, of course, and primarily as a singer. And I know that she went on to do movies, but in my mind, she was you know, like uh, Britney Spears made a movie. She was just like right. a singer who got famous and then parlayed that into a, an acting career. But what surprised me is she didn't ever really intend to be a singer. She just kind of was so talented and could always do it. So she took it for granted and really pursued acting from such a young age. So uh, she came, you know, came by all that success, honestly. I But I was really surprised. I thought it was the other way around. Yeah, I did too. And it's, you know, when she asks for proof of God of whether the guy was going to step off the curb or not, I'm thinking like, what better proof? Just she's born with this voice. I guess her mother was a, a singer also. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do some research whether it's God or biology. I'll get okay, back okay, to you. I'll put it in the but show yeah, notes. That's well, what I kept thinking this whole time. She's just like, one of a, I mean, we're all one of a kind, but she's just like unprecedented and nobody has been like her before or since. A whole other theme that we're about to get into is her genius and in, in so many places, but she, at age 12, she was called ugly by her stepdad and she heard it and her being unattractive was so such a part of who she is, but she used it to fuel her. And I feel like it made her unstoppable because if beauty yeah. isn't even on the table mm -hmm. for you to begin with in show business, like it's for women, it's the thing, right? And she, she doesn't have it. Although interestingly, the tide turns in her favor as she becomes so successful and appealing because of her talent. And she kind of grows into her face and her looks and all that. It was so inspiring to me and it reminds me of female comedians that really embrace like being weird and ugly instead of trying for the pretty thing. And it's just so much more valuable. I mean, I don't want to say it's an asset because she had to work so much harder because she didn't fit the mold, but I think it just fueled the heck out of her. Yeah. 
Good point. I mean, I think she's such a huge talent that she was really unstoppable. And it's almost like the sense of fashion, beauty, everything had to change to fit her rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Like at one point, I think she's still in her 20s when she goes to Paris and she meets with Diana Reeland, who at that point is the editor of Vogue. And Diana Reeland considers Barbara a fashion icon, you know, and Barbara's clothes are like from thrift shops, mm -hmm. <laughs> mostly. Yeah, so the foreword has horrible description. She's reading horrible descriptions of her looks from her Broadway debuts. She says, sometimes it felt like my nose got more pressed than I did. In the cover story for Time, a writer wrote, this nose is a shrine. The look and repose wow. is the essence of a hound. People wow. told her she should get a nose job, cap her teeth, change her name. She was compared to a sour persimmon, a furious hamster, a seasick ferret. But then... By the time she was on Broadway and Funny Girl, she was being compared to Nefertiti and a Babylonian queen. Um, but yeah, she... I mean, I can relate. You, you compared <laughs> us to horses, so I don't know. So she develops her genius. Um, she's painfully thorough, like you said, to an extent that she cannot let go of things, scenes that were cut from movies, you know, 40 years ago. So what struck you about her genius that you didn't already know? Like we talked about, we thought she was a singer and we knew she acted, but like, I definitely did not know much about her as a director. And I certainly did not give her the credit until I read this memoir about everything she went to to get her movies made, how she was treated on set. Yeah, that was, I, I knew that was really fun to read about all these movies, the way we were, What's Up Doc?, um, funny girl, funny lady, all, all of those, because I know those movies so well. And I mean, it was the patriarchal, you know, men kind of telling her she was difficult and she wasn't really being difficult. And she says many times in there, um, it was, um, the way we were, there were some deleted scenes and she had big discussions with the director, Sidney Pollack, and he didn't go and do what she wanted to. And she kept pressing it and pressing it. And she is really like a, a dog with a bone on this because she's so adamant that she's right. And she finally, you know, decades later got uh, those scenes inserted into the movie. And there weren't scenes that were like, like her Oscar moment or anything, but she's like, this is what it needs for the story. It doesn't make sense if A and right. B happen without this scene in between. So she's very much into the integrity of the projects and the integrity of the art. That's how I took it. And I'm sure she's a huge pain in the ass because she's relentless, but she's also usually right. Nine times out of 10, she's right. And when she's not right, she admits it. She, she does says admit they it, were yeah. right. You know, she, when somebody else is right. Um, I was surprised by how much she was intimidated by the process or what an, an emotional toll it took on her. Like she had so many fans, people were lining up like fairly early on in her career where she she was performing at a club in Greenwich Village, the Bonsoir. Is that what it was mm -hmm. called? Yeah, at the Bonsoir. And then when people would say like, oh, it must feel so great to come so many people hear you sing when she was in Funny Girl, when she had a concert in Central Park. And she's like, what are you talking about? I, I want to throw up every day. And um, my most villainous character is Sidney Chaplin, who yep. is Charlie Chaplin's son, as he told everybody during a Funny Girl. But they had 
like a prelude to a romantic liaison. I'm not sure what happened between them. There was a flirtation and then she decides to cut it off because she's already married to Elliot Gould. And Sid did not take rejection well. He was her co-star. And he, I mean, he tormented her. He would say like nasty things to her, like in her ear while they were performing. So the audience would assume that it was sweet nothings. But he would say things like, oh, you really fucked up that scene. And it mm -hmm. almost drove her crazy. She had to seek medical and psychiatric treatment. It was just an awful, awful thing. And that's, I didn't know anything about her Broadway career and what she had to endure from that asshole. And there are so many assholes in this story. I mean, he is... she, she names names and tells stories and yeah. she makes this names. a really good read. Yeah, absolutely. And that is why she wrote this. She says, it's time to dispel the myths. The work and the process and the person behind the work, setting the record straight. There's always been these rumors that she's impossible to work with, rumors about her love life. And she doesn't even like to do interviews because they constantly misquote her. And there's famous Mike Wallace interviews that where he tr just treated her terribly. And the reason she's doing this is she wants the truth out there. She, you know, the, it's impossible to digest the entirety of her work until you read this book, really. Yeah. yeah. And she mentions a couple of times producer Ray Stark planted stories in the press about her bad behavior because he thought any publicity is good publicity for the projects. So, right. you know, she couldn't win in that situation. And then Walter Matthau was friends oh, with yeah. um, Sydney. So on Hello, Dolly, he was cruel to her until she called him straight out and asked him, oh, well, I'm friends with so she called him and asked him why he was being so difficult. And he told her he was friends with Sid Chaplin. Shane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, Walter Matthau went to the studio head and asked that she be replaced, right? I think the story goes. And the studio head said, um, we can get another Walter Matthau for this movie, but we can't get another <laughs> Barbara. And just all sorts of things. Like, I had no idea how Mandy Patinkin behaved on the set of Yantel. He was blowing his fuse left and right with everyone. And she's like, what is happening? Why are you acting this way? And he's basically said, I thought we were going to have an affair. And she's like, I'm not interested. I would never have an affair with somebody I was directed and you're married. Like, no, no, and no. Um, and she grew so irritated and repulsed by him that she literally rewrote the ending of the movie. So she didn't have to do a love scene with him. And that's one of those things where she thinks back now and she's like, Maybe that wasn't the right decision. I, and I got that little detail from a Guardian review by Emma Brocks. Like maybe the audience deserved to see those two um, come together, but she she just could not stand it. She had misogyny from Isaac Bashev Singer, who wrote the original Yentl story. And even like Nick Nolte on the set of Prince of Tides, like would on purpose, you know, not do what she told him and go along with like the boys club and say he was too embarrassed to speak up for her or do what she wanted in front of the guys and had asked her to come and sit on his lap. Ew. Like things that would just never happen ever and never be questioned. Like no man's authority would be questions. Like, and she had such good reasons for everything she did. Like you said, Mariana, like she just wanted to, she had a scene all set up. She always did the other opposite actors scenes before her when she was acting and directing because she prioritized the other actors and they needed like 15 minutes left on the set and nobody would do it. And that required 
the next day to a lot more hours. Nick Nolte wasn't, was no longer in the emotional state he should have been in all because she was a woman. Never yeah. would have happened with a male director. Mm -hmm. Like we just need 15 minutes. And a lot right. of the men she calls out for bad behavior are dead, but a lot of them aren't. Mandy Patinkin's on Instagram right now. Yeah. So that I thought that was pretty brave because, she, you know, she's like, what do I have to lose at this point? Why not? That's right. how it happened. Right. She's not setting out to trash them. She's just saying, like, this is how it happened. This is what they did. You know, when we first started, when I first saw how heavy this book was and how it had a five million pages, I thought. And even when I started reading it, like I, she goes into so many details and then sometimes she writes like, I don't remember what happened at that performance, but fortunately my mother has a scrapbook. So let me read from that. I'm like, oh fuck. And I thought I was really convinced that she's such a huge mega star that no editor had the balls to tell her cut, like cut it in half. But then as I progressed in my, um, listening slash reading, I, I realized like she wants to, there's so much misinformation about her that it's, it takes as long as it takes to dispel it. And she builds up trust in the memoir. So we like her. I mean, she's, I, but we also hear her, like I have zero doubt that she wrote this, right. That it's her voice. Agree. And it's not, it doesn't feel like a slog because there it's, really interesting and even the right. details that she mentions what shoes she wore what dress she, it's all very interesting mm -hmm. it's certainly not like a man bashing book like she isn't mm -mm. she loves men she has a lot mm -hmm. of wonderful stories about men going back her whole career um she's incredible stories about marlon brando yeah, um, they're good friends their friendship where you know he propositioned her who wants to tell that story anybody well, she first writes about him, about how she fell in love with him as a teenage girl watching him on screen. Like he was the pinnacle of beauty and acting prowess to her. And then years later, she met him at a party, I believe. Mm -hmm. And yes. they really connected. And he was also a very unique individual. Um, and they never hooked up, as the kids say. But had an attraction, they had an intellectual, emotional connection. So he'd call her from time to time. And but he was very blunt, I think, you know, like saying, like, I, I thought she could have done better in that movie. Or didn't he say something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. When they first meet, he like kisses her back. Oh. And she's taken, a, taken aback. And he's <laughs> sorry. <laughs> And he says, like, you can't have a back that looks like that and not get kissed. And she's, you know, completely wowed. But then he propositions her directly. And then she's like, freaks out. No, thank you. And he suggests going to a museum. And she's. Well, he says, let's fuck. And yes. she's like, no. And he's like, well, how about the museum? then? <laughs> but she also not, not prudish, but she's a little, you know, prim. She likes romance. She, she isn't like in it for that you know, just having sex type of thing. No, that was not her character. Um, and she was so young. I mean, she so young. And, and pretty inexperienced. But what I thought was neat is even though he said, let's go to a museum, she thought that was the most romantic thing she mm -hmm. had ever heard to mm -hmm. go to a museum with a man. But they their friendship spans many years. She really bonds with other people who've lost a parent. They really bonded not only over losing a father in childhood, but having a unkind or cruel stepfather you know they saw something in each other from mm -hmm. the first time they met 
Another example just of her cojones, so young, um, when she, her first Broadway show was I Can Get It For You Wholesale. And um, at her audition, she, well, there's like a classic Barbara Streisand story, how she took off out her gum and put it under the chair. (laughs) She was a big gum chewer. And her audition was incredible. She played this office girl and she did the song from a chair, just improvising. And the director, Arthur Lawrence, it was the first time she had been introduced to the idea of blocking, which is the norm. Directors tell you where to go and you do it every show. And it's like choreography, even just for talking, even if it's not a musical. And one thing that Barbara will tell you over and over goes, she never does the same thing twice. She never sings the same song twice. So she was incredulous. And she was only probably 19 or 20. 19 or 20. 19. So she just, the concept was completely foreign to her. And she just fundamentally, it wasn't working. In the previews, it wasn't working. And she kept saying, I got to do this in the chair. She knew, and that was already her director brain, like seeing Mm -hmm. it from the outside and Mm -hmm. intuitively knowing what's going to work with the audience. And finally, again, she's just like a dog with a bone. She won't let it up. And finally, she does it in preview without permission. She just does it in her chair, stops, it stops the show. The audience goes crazy. It becomes the poster of the show, her in the chair. Um, So that is just not the way the system works. Like actors at the lowest on the totem pole. You don't get to say, especially when you're a 19 year old, nobody. Um, but she, she delivers is the thing time and she again. The, the, and she, she's just, she's such a, she's a true artist. She's like living it. She's feeling it. It's in her head and she's all in, which is very unusual. So I think that also leads to her wanting to do it the way she thinks it has to be done because she's at a whole different level than most people that are on that stage. Yeah. It's not about vanity. It's about honesty and she Mm -hmm. will do it. She will do it until she can do it honestly. Otherwise it's not worth telling. And authentically. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That's the word I think that we're looking for. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank what you other much. words are we looking for? <laughs> you know, I wanted to talk about Omar Sharif. Okay. So she was really impressed with him in Lawrence of Arabia, but he was an Arab born in Egypt playing a Jew born in New Jersey. And that became a bit of a problem because after he was cast, the six day war between Israel and Egypt broke out. So when they had a kiss, there was a headline. It said, When a publicity still of the two of us rehearsing a number reached the Egyptian press, it sparked a movement to revoke his citizenship. One headline read, Omar kisses Barbara, Egypt angry. My response was, Egypt angry? You should hear what my Aunt Anna said. And then she said, that's a joke, by the way. (laughs) But, But when the movie came out, it was banned in Egypt. And so were the rest of Omar's movies. That's nuts. She really, truly does hate a lot of what comes with celebrity. She likes Mm -hmm. the perks of like getting to meet amazing people, like later on getting to be friends with the Clintons and the amazing impact she's able to have as an advocate, raising money for causes like AIDS in the 80s when it was when Reagan was failing the whole country. She's very politically involved, like she's 
a friend of Bella Abzug from New York. She campaigns mm -hmm. for her. She's, I mean, she's she's politically she has a political conscience. She has a social conscience, and um, and it's and she's it's active. It's all going back to authenticity and having something to say and your her integrity is everything to her. So she has some truly terrifying moments early on in her career. One we already talked about with on stage in Funny Girl, and that is just completely traumatic, having a co-star who's actively trying to throw you when it's hard enough to just do your job. She had a moment when right. um, Hello Dolly came out where she was caught in a mob and she just never wanted to go to a premiere again. She was terrified. She had a superhuman moment that happens all the time with performance, but let's talk about that concert in Central Park. Like this was before big outdoor concerts were a thing. Um, she was afraid nobody was going to show up. They had to like <laughs> rig up a sound system so that um, people could even hear in the back of Sheep's Meadow and what in Central Park and what they thought was going to be, you know, they hoped for 20,000 people and they set a record for the most people ever in 150, something 150,000. Like was that right? Um, but she forgot her words on one song and it stopped her from performing live for like decades. Yeah, I can see that. It's this cruel dichotomy of, I believe her when she says she does not want to perform live. She hates it, but she's this artist and wants mm -hmm. to get her work out there. She loves recording. She loves making records and she still loves making records. Um, and all of that was really the, the making of records too was very interesting. I mean, you have all the movie stuff, you have the Broadway stuff. And then she talks about like Rupert Holmes from the Pina Colada escape song was a big collaborator collaborator with her, which I had no idea. And she just talks about uh, sometimes the the themes of the album she wants to do, how it changes, what the reception is. So if you're interested in her musical career, you get all that too. I mean, there's so much in this, so much. Well, maybe we'll wrap up part one right now. Okay. Does it seem like a good place to wrap up sure. part one? Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to say so far, I really like her. I believe her. I'm okay. sure she can be a PETA, like any wildly talented perfectionist. But I think she mainly gets guff because she's a woman. She comes off like a straight shooter to me and so incredibly savvy as a business person. Like, and Mariana, you were talking about her art, like her being able to afford art. She's so, she's savvy on every level. It's just unbelievable. And I love the fact that she got by in spite of her looks, not because of them. There's this whole outcry over the outfit and and unfortunately she talks about how sometimes women are her fiercest critics and she talks about in particular how like maureen dowd wrote a whole oh God. critique of her outfit that she wore to sing at president clinton's inauguration and then go back it's the stunning donna karen suit like you know barbara just can't win and it's no surprised she doesn't want to do interviews and why she's written this book and yes she's self-obsessed but it's hard pressed not to be if you've had her career and again she is self-aware um you know more than a few reviews call her boring and self-involved I don't understand how anyone could think this was boring whether or not you like her voice or her movie I mean this is a fascinating career what if she I was thinking about this I don't think she is braggadocious in this at all she's just you know maybe she reads a, a couple more glowing reviews than she needs to <laughs> yeah. 
but but if she had false humility, it would come across as disingenuous. I mean, she's Barbara Streisand. You're not like, well, I guess it was okay. People seem to like she can't do that because that's not true, right. and it would be false. She's yeah. too she's too real for that. And I am I cannot think of another human, man or woman, who has as many talents at this level as she yeah. does. It's like not even of this earth. I want to say quickly, and then I want to hear from uh, Mariana, but uh, going back to how she's so savvy with business, she has creative control early on in many projects, which was unheard of, especially for a woman, and brilliant, because that means if the project or album or photo shoot came out or you know got to the end result and she didn't like it, she could change it. And that was really, really smart. And I'm not I'm not clear if that was her doing. I mean, her agent, I remember there was an album cover, which she wanted it to be just her back and Columbia Records didn't like that cover. But she's like, yeah, but I had creative control. So mm -hmm. what I said went and she has that confidence. I think she's in her early 20s when that happens to I stand know. up for for her vision. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier. She doesn't need to learn a lesson more than once and she will not mm -hmm. repeat the same mistake. So she talks about the business, the things that didn't go her way. And that now I learn why you need creative control because they took the bump mm -hmm. out of my nose in that picture. Oh, right. And I never would have right. done that. That's not even me, you know? Um, and there's a couple instances like that where she learns early that she needs to have creative control, especially as a woman mm -hmm. in this business, because people are mm -hmm. actively undermining her left and right. Yeah. But she she knows how valuable she is. And that's, she just does. I mean, that they want to work with her. And so she might as well leverage that to work the way she wants to. Um, there's, you know, she talks about being insecure, but she's very uh, secure in what she has to offer and what she wants from what she does. Any more last thoughts about this first part of the book that we've read? I mean, there's so much more to say, obviously. Yeah, we can, there, we there's can a lot, lot more to say. We didn't talk about her marriage, but all of that we will put in our horse feed bag or in our saddle <laughs> and we'll bring it to the next episode. <laughs> From between now and then, I'll be, you know, brushing your mane and um, thank you, thank yeah, you. just making sure everyone looks and sounds their best. So anyway, I um, I got like this weird mailer from the glue stick factory. Do you know what that's about? Oh my god! <laughs> well, thank you for listening to my name is memoir. I mean, it's pronounced memoir. Stay tuned for part two, and go ahead and hit that plus button and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you love this podcast, please rate us and post a review. Perhaps we will read aloud your rave like Babs does. See you next Ooh. time. Ooh. Bye. Bye. Bye.